0: This episode of the Seasonals podcast was recorded in June 2020, so if a reference to the time of the year seems weird, that's why. Also, if there's a specific part of the podcast or recent episodes you really enjoy, or if you have someone who would be a great seasonal guest, or if you just want to give the host a piece of your mind, message us on Facebook or Instagram. Let's get to it.
1: And like, I laughed because, you know, it was a surf shop. I'm not a surf girl. I'm a normal kid from Virginia. Like, I don't do that. I go to grad school. And then I started thinking about it, and I'm like, what if I was a surf kid? What if I did do this? What if I just went to grad school next semester? I was like, the only thing keeping me from doing this is myself.
0: This is The Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle we take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. Alright, I'm here with Nicole Miller today. How are you, Nicole?
1: I'm doing really good. How are you, Joey? I'm
0: good. I'm good. We are in Salida, Colorado. We've checked out some waterfalls. We had a delicious sour beer at Soulcraft Brewing today. And now we're about to learn all about your seasonal existence.
1: That sounds super great.
0: So, you are a kiteboarding instructor.
1: I am. Yeah, I've um, been kiteboarding instructing since 2015, but I'm taking this summer off due to an ACL injury.
0: And where do you usually go for your kiteboarding instructing?
1: Um, So North Carolina in the Outer Banks is hands down the best place to teach. I've actually tried to teach other places. And honestly, at this point, it's just not even worth it. Um, the structure and support that you get where I work in the Outer Banks is just absolutely unparalleled going to other places and having not quite the same support from your coworkers and your bosses. It just makes it really hard because when you have something good, you appreciate it. So,
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so take me through like, one of your favorite days in the last couple seasons, like teaching, instructing someone, you know, how they were, how, how you were, how the weather was, and what just sort of like a day for a kiteboarding instructor is like.
1: So one of the fun parts about teaching kiteboarding is that no two days are ever the same. You have similarities in every day, but at the end of it, the wind is different. The weather is different. Your students are different. like things are going to be different. And honestly, my favorite days teaching kiteboarding all involve a southwest wind. Um, And why that is so good is because it's a warm wind. So the Outer Banks is um, super variable in their wind directions and the temperature. And so a northeast wind is very cold and gusty and it's just not as fun. So when the wind's blowing southwest, it's onshore, it's easy to teach, it's super warm, the students enjoy it. And they might not know the difference but you can see the difference in how they learn and i like teaching kiteboarding because i like seeing people learn and like get that smile on their face so when the wind is better it's better for me um and so an average day uh say we've never met our student before um we do a meet and greet at the beginning of the day after a coach's meeting and the cool thing about where i work is the coaches meetings where we all get together and talk about the conditions and talk about how some things are harder than others and how to teach those things. And it helps the new coaches, um, really kind of dial in their skills. And I think that's what puts my job kind of a step above other people, um, other companies is that sharing of knowledge from the people who have been doing it for 15 years to the people who have been doing it for 15 minutes. Um, that's really valuable. So after the coaches meeting, um, we do a meet-and-greet, and it's really important, and the more I teach kiteboarding, the more I value that 20-minute um, area of time where I get to know a student, because everyone comes to kiteboard for different reasons. Um, some people come because they want to be kiteboarders, and they want to do it on their own, and they want to travel, and they want to like, show up to a spot and not make a fool of themselves and be awesome. And other people just want to do it once. And that's all, they just wanna be like, I went kiteboarding and they wanna show their friends the video and post it on Instagram. And that's just as cool. But if you don't know that, you might have them doing things they don't need to do for that one Instagram video. And so it makes it like a little bit more lighthearted. You don't have to like go through like all of the safety stuff quite as much because they're just doing it the one time. And then after the meet and greet, you get to it. You start going over the kite gear and the safety and you hit the water. And that's when it gets really fun. Everyone's super excited to get to the water and learn how to kite. And they start getting thrown around. And that's really entertaining for me as well. (laughs) Um, Because I went through that. So it's really fun to watch other people go through the same pain that I did a couple years ago. (laughs) Um, And then normally we end the day like uh, around five or six, depending on the wind. And a lot of times the students will hang out and grab beers with us. So it's a really cool job because it's just more... More than teaching kiteboarding, and you get to know people and learn where they're from and they're interested in your story as well.
0: What's sort of the social life like being a kiteboarder in Outer Banks?
1: Fun. <laughs> it is really really fun. Um as a kiteboard instructor, our days are super wind dependent. So uh, we might work every day if there's wind, and then if there's not wind, we get beach days. Um, which means all the kiteboard instructors and whatever like retail workers are off we just go to the beach and we have big nine foot soft tops and we go surfing all day and we hang out and um, it's pretty cool to like kind of have that flexibility in your schedule because when we when it's windy we work and that's part of why we're seasonal workers is to work when there's work and to not work when there's not work. Um, That's what makes the the job fun. And then you get to know your coworkers really, really well because we all kind of live in the same area. We work together um, and there's a a lot of intermingling. So I've made some of like my best friends in Hatteras working as a kiteboard instructor and I get to meet them now all over the world. Like we don't all stay there all the time. We move, we travel. And that's part of the fun too is we may not see each other for like six or seven months or a year or two, but eventually... Somewhere along the way, whether it's like back in Hatteras or if it's in the Philippines or if it's in California, like we're going to run into each other. And that's a really cool part of the social scene, I think, in Hatteras.
0: What is one of the best aspects of it being the Outer Banks? Like the, the social part, that could be somewhere else. But what is a specific part of the Outer Banks that brings a lot to the whole situation for you?
1: Well, for me... Personally, I don't really know about other people, but for me personally, I've been going to the Outer Banks since I was a kid. Um, Some of my earliest memories are spending Thanksgiving at the beach, um, eating Chinese food, takeout, uh, running around in the ice cold ocean. There's wind whipping uh, and we're, you know, running from the ocean to the fire, from the ocean to the fire, from the ocean to the fire. So I have a lot of childhood memories wrapped up in the Outer Banks. And I would say for other people, it's the low key aspect of it. The Outer Banks isn't overrun um, with tourists, and it's not overrun with chain restaurants. And it's a place where you can hang out with your family or your friends, whoever you're down there with. And you're actually like hanging out with the people you value in your life, as opposed to hanging out in the same place with the people you're with, which I think it's a really important distinction to make, especially today when a lot of people spend a lot of time on their phones or on their computers or watching TV or playing video games, is that it's a really good place to escape and kind of let things fall to the side a little bit.
0: So it's more intimate than, say, Myrtle Beach or something like that.
1: Yeah, I... I'm not proud of this, but I judge people who like Myrtle Beach more than the Outer Banks. Um, actually, maybe I am proud of that. Uh, it I won't write someone off, but it definitely colors my opinion of them because Myrtle Beach is just – it's a different way of living. It's very busy. We'll say that. Um, but, yeah, the Outer Banks is a lot quieter. It's a lot less traveled, and I think it's a gem on the East Coast that – Well, until the Netflix show that just came out, a lot of people probably didn't know about.
0: Right, right. Netflix is ruining all the secrets.
1: Well, and the Outer Banks isn't even in the Netflix show. It's all filmed in South Carolina. They did get the PBRs right. All we drink in the Outer Banks is PBRs.
0: That makes sense. So to dive into the details a little more, let's say I'm out there, we're kiteboarding, what are some of the, the basics that we would go over in the first session?
1: So a lot of people don't realize that the basics of kiteboarding have absolutely nothing to do with the board on your feet. Um, for people who don't know what kiteboarding is, picture a boat, someone wakeboarding behind a boat, but take the boat out of the picture and put like a kite that is attached to the person um, which is, which is what kiteboarding is. So a lot of times, because people see people kiteboarding with the board on their feet, because that's the goal, they think that is how they have to learn. But honestly, the first day kiteboarding, which is typically a six-hour day, you never touch the board. What we really are working on is drilling in those safety aspects and drilling in the absolute basics, so that way you can get back to your board when you lose it. Because nobody wants to lose a $400, $500 board every time they go out and kiteboard. And the other thing is kiteboarding is an extreme sport, which I think a lot of people forget because we've made it so accessible and it's as extreme as you want it to be. There are people out there um, hucking like 80 foot airs in Cape Town at King of the Air. But I've also taught a 80 year old man how to kiteboard and he was stoked. He had a great time, but we learned all the safety aspects that took the extreme part out of it. So, yeah, the first day is going to be, like, very basic. Like, this is how you do this safely. This is how you do this not safely. And this is how we're going to do it safely. Um, And then the second day is typically when people get the board on their feet. And normally people can just accept that it's going to be a process and enjoy the journey. It's a lot more fun.
0: We're in the second day. I've had the board for a little bit. And I take a nasty fall. (laughs) What did I probably do wrong?
1: Pulled in. So this is actually a really, really good question. But when you have the kite in the air, you're holding onto a bar and the bar moves out and in on a rope. And actually, people think kiteboarding requires a ton of upper body strength, but it doesn't because the kite is balanced out by the weight of your body. So that takes all the like arm strength that you would hypothetically need out of it. And instead, the bar you're holding onto just steers it. And so what happens is as you move the bar, you have two dynamics. You have the steering left and right. You also have power. So when you pull the bar in, you're powering up your kite. And so what we tell beginners to do is when they start to freak out, let go of the bar. But the human instinct is the fetal position. So you start to freak out, you pull the bar in because your fetal positioning, which powers up the kite, which causes the kite to do a bunch of crazy things. And I have literally seen people superman themselves across the water. Like they are just flying across the water. They're not touching it at all. There's like three feet between them and the water. And they come up, they're just shaking their head, a little dazed, but you know, nine times out of 10, they look at me and they're like, let's do that again. Um, That's the nice thing about learning to kiteboard is you wreck yourself, you're in the water. It's relatively soft, um, especially compared to, like, other sports I've learned, like, snowboarding and mountain biking. Like, you have to try to hurt yourself kiteboarding, um, especially as you're learning. Most kiteboarding accidents come from people who are in that, that, like, in-between stage. They're not good, but they're not bad. And they're just in-between.
0: They're getting risky. You got it. What is... A sort of sign that you're out of the beginner stage and into the like normal kiteboarder stage?
1: Going upwind. Um so if any of you guys are familiar with sailing or windsurfing, if you're going downwind, what that means is you can't go back to where you started and everyone starts going downwind. And so upwind is the holy grail of kiteboarding. What that means is that you can go out from a spot and come back in at the same spot, which is really valuable because there's a lot of spots where if you go past your starting point, you're now in the middle of the ocean. Um, Or you're in a place where barges go through. Like in Hood River, Oregon, there's a ton of barge traffic and Hood River's not the only place like that. So when you're able to go upwind and stay upwind by yourself, as well as get back to your board by yourself, that's when you're considered an independent kiteboarder, and that's when things start to get really fun.
0: Probably saves you a lot of walking as well.
1: Yeah, that's how um, I learned. I would do circuits. So where I uh, worked kiteboarding, I started in the retail store and then moved to the lesson center while I was learning. And I was in the beginning, very embarrassed of kiting in front of all these amazing, awesome people I had just met. So I would drive 30 minutes south to uh, a beach on the Sound and I would, <laughs> I would just do circuits. And I would just do circuits and circuits and circuits. And I'd go downwind, get out, walk back upwind, go downwind, get out, and walk back upwind. But it gave me a lot of incentive to figure my shit out. Like I started going upwind much more quickly than when I wasn't worried about going upwind.
0: You're sort of forced to learn at that point.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. So, And then I started going out where I worked, and things were better because then my coworkers, who were totally not judging me even in the first place, then started to like give me tips. They were able to help me out. Um, so I wish in the beginning I had been a little less self-conscious, but, you know, it is what it is.
0: Yeah, I think that's with a lot of different things. Is You just got to jump into it, and you'll learn faster if you throw yourself into it. So you mentioned you had done some kiteboarding in other places. What are some other places that you've tried out?
1: Um, so I have been it feels like anyway, kind of all over the world. Um, so I do my summers in North Carolina and I did my first winter in North Carolina as well, but the sound froze over and the sound has salt in it. And I it was so that's cold. It's what I'm trying to say is it was cold. Yeah. And I was not about that. And I was like, trying to figure out how all these people around me were going to really cool places for the winter. So I spent all next summer working at the lesson center desk, learning how to kite and quizzing everyone around me about their travel plans. And I went to Puerto Rico and um, I was like, okay, like this is my first place I've traveled on my own. You know, it's still part of the U.S., but it's also not part of the U.S. They speak Spanish. I was like, it's a good middle ground. So I kited there and I also taught surfing there because I wasn't a good enough kiter yet to teach kiting, but teaching surfing there was much easier and very fun. And then the next winter, I went to a lot of different places actually. It was really, really eye-opening for me. I went to um, Brazil, Panama, Colombia, Morocco, Spain with a job that kind of traveled around the world with the wind. So I felt like really privileged that I was getting paid to experience a bunch of different kite destinations, which was awesome. And then the year after that, I went to the Philippines, which was cool as well.
0: What was the job that you traveled to so many places at? Was it kiteboarding as well?
1: Yeah, um, so it's kind of wild. I think I've moved to Colorado since then, and a lot of people have heard of these uh, high schools that the kids ski at while also doing high school. So I went to the kiteboarding version of that. And so I taught high school, I taught Algebra 1, Environmental Science, and Biology for a American-based high school that also had international students going to it, which I didn't even know existed. And also, how cool is it that that exists? Like, it's wild. Um, So it's based out of Hood River, Oregon, and the kids are from all over. We had two kids from Mexico, um, a couple kids from America, a Canadian, an Austrian, an English kid, And there's probably a few more that I'm not remembering, but we had 16 kids in total and five to six instructors, depending on the semester. And it was a very insane experience. Um, So I remember Brazil was my first destination. I was hired for the um, second quarter. So they'd already been to Hood River in Hawaii. And so they all kind of knew each other. I was hired for the second quarter and we went to Brazil and I was the first teacher on the ground at Brazil. And I hadn't met any of these kids. And so they tell me that it's my job to get the first six kids that showed up into the van to the place that we were staying and to lunch. And I'm just over here like, oh, okay, yes, this is what we're doing. And so I somehow meet all the kids, thankfully they're very used to this. So like they had it under control. And let me tell you they had it under control. We got in the van, they gave me the rundown on all the rules. It was so funny. They immediately were like, "Okay, so we can't do this, but we can do this, and we can't do this, but we can do this." Oh, and if we curse, we have to do 10 push-ups. So if you curse, you have to do 10 push-ups. They made sure to fill me in on everything. And um then we show up to the posada where we're staying. And we had to figure out where we're going to eat. And it's set up for us. But I don't speak Spanish and I don't speak Portuguese. I, like, I know words in Spanish, but I don't speak it. Luckily, um, JP and Alina were with me. And they were the two kids from Mexico. So they, again, (laughs) they took charge day one. (laughs) Um, Because I was very out of my depth. And they got us to where we were going to eat lunch. Um, And then, luckily, everyone else started showing up a couple hours later. And the teachers were able to kind of give me the rundown and... From there, things went a little, I mean, it went very smoothly from the start, but I definitely felt like I was just along for the ride in the beginning. Um, Sometimes that feeling didn't quite go away. You know, it kind of stuck around every now and then. But it was a really cool job and a really cool experience.
0: Do you think when they sent you down there and told you to pick up the kids that they knew the kids were going to sort of take over and, like, be capable? Or was that just sort of lucky that it worked out that way.
1: That's really interesting, because I've actually thought about that as well, especially at the time, because I was like, what are you doing sending me down first? I I don't know what we're doing, but I think those kids are really used to traveling and they know that and they knew the kids that I'd be meeting up with. And so I think it was a mixture of both, yeah.
0: So it sounds like, I mean, a lot of schools have different clubs, like say a kiteboarding club. But it sounds like that was a kiteboarding school with a school club in it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it kind of felt like that, actually. Our days were pretty structured. I mean, it has to be. With 16 teenage kids teaching high school, it has to be very structured. Um, And so we would wake up in the morning and have breakfast. And in some locations, like Brazil, we had all of our meals prepared for us. And we were so spoiled. We had crepes every day for breakfast and fresh fruit and eggs and I could just keep going on but breakfasts were amazing in Brazil and then in places like Panama we had to cook our own breakfast because it financially didn't make sense we had to crack 60 to 80 eggs for breakfast serious (laughs) um
0: so those long morning
1: (laughs) well that was just the eggs (laughs) like we had to serve them other things too you know balanced diet for these teenage athletes um and then every morning we had study hall before classes, so it kind of gave them a chance to catch up on homework and get help if they needed it. And then we went into classes, and then after classes was lunch and then kiteboarding. And again, I keep saying Brazil It was the first place I went to, so it really stuck out in my memory. And it was kind of cool because like when we went kiteboarding, we had to be back by a certain time for dinner, and I was able to tell the time by the end of it by the sun. Like, it was very much like, because in Brazil, we were on the ocean. It was really flat. And by the end of it, I'd be like, oh, yep, look at that sun. It's about 7 o'clock. Time to start packing it up. And Brazil was also kind of the coolest destination, because we had roughly 22, 23 people, depending on the time. Someone kited every day we were there for seven weeks. Like, there was, and that's really unheard of. For people who don't know the wind, like, there's a thing called getting skunked. Like, you show up to kite. And there's no win, and you are there for a kite vacation. It's not like you get a refund on anything. You don't get a refund for your hotel or your plane tickets. You just have to make the best of it. So for at least one person every day for seven weeks straight to kiteboard is why Brazil is such a mecca. So, yeah, Brazil like really sticks out because it was the first place. Morocco is the coolest place I think I've ever been hands down. It was the first place I've felt culture shock it, we, so we flew into Marrakesh and we stayed there for a couple of days. And part of the cool thing about the school is yes, it's kiting. Yes, it's school, but it's culture. So we spent two days in Marrakesh exploring just to see what the culture was like, because what experience are these kids getting if they're just kiting and just doing schoolwork in these foreign countries? Like what kind of exposure is that? And I'm used to America where the United States, where we, Are a little protective of our kids you know like it used to be your kids could stay out all day and play and skateboard and bike but now it's kind of like stay close to home and like make sure i know where you are but we took these kids divided them into groups sent them off into the maze of the marrakesh marketplace and told them see you back here in three hours and we did so we as teachers we went off in our own group and we went straight for three hours because we were like we're gonna get lost if we don't Guys, we went straight for three hours and we still got lost. And we got lost. And yet somehow we get back to the meeting place. All the kids are there because they showed up on time. And they're all dressed in like traditional Moroccan clothes. They they have the robes. They have the turbans. They have fake watches on their arms. Um, so, yeah, we spent a couple days in Marrakesh. And then we went to this little town on the ocean called Eswara. And it was really quaint. It wasn't like there wasn't a lot going on there, but there was really great kite surfing. And we had to walk about a mile and a half to get to the kiting spot, um, which really showed like which kids were dedicated to the sport because it was hard. It was very, very difficult. There were cactuses, there were fences, there were goats. Um, it was a long walk. And it was really cool there though. I I did really like it. And then we went to um, Dakla, which depending on the map you look at, doesn't actually belong to Morocco. It's like in the Sahara desert. So it just kind of depends who you're asking. And that was interesting because it was a kite camp. There were like eight kite camps around the water. And if kiting didn't exist, this place wouldn't exist. So that was interesting being there, being like, there was no town. There was no Moroccan culture. It was just a kite camp. But the wind, the wind was really good. And the food was amazing. It was all-you-can-eat buffet for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I love pesto. Like, you put basil and garlic and olive oil together, and, like, I'm there. And they had pesto available at every meal, so I was sold. And the housing accommodations, I would say at Dakla, were the coolest. They had two tents, one for the students, all 16 of them, and one for the adults. And they were tents. They were big, massive If you think of Morocco and you think of, like, Arabian Nights, they were that style tents with these big plush beds on the floor, like these awesome blankets and comforters. It just, like, felt very luxurious Uh, while also being crammed into a tent with, as a teacher, five other people, but the kids were crammed in with 15 other people. But, I mean, it didn't feel crammed. It was a really cool, really cool experience. I liked Morocco a lot.
0: Were you kiteboarding in Dakla? I'm, I'm thinking of, like, okay were you on sand dunes or
1: no? Yeah. So there were sand dunes all over, but there was, um, a patch of water that was really shallow and shallow water is both good and bad for kiteboarding. It's bad because if you fall, you're more likely to hurt yourself. But if you're not good, cause good people fall and hurt themselves as well. But if, um, you're not falling and hurting yourselves, it makes flatter water because with less water to churn up, it's, it just stays flatter. Um, So, yeah, the wind was really good, and it was a really, really popular spot. And there was this one place that had a sand dune in the middle of the water that we were kiting on, and it was a thing to hike up it and jump off of it into the water. Like, you wouldn't have your board on your feet, and you would just, like, just jump off of it, and that was really cool. But, yeah, everything, pretty much everything we did with the school was almost always kiteboarding related.
0: Brazil, Morocco, where else did you guys go?
1: We spent a lot of time in Columbia, which I think Columbia was one of my, my favorite spots. So I taught environmental science. That was one of my classes. And I tried really hard to come up every once in a while with like a fun thing that we could do for class instead of just like talking. Because these are all kids who are super active and super distracted very easily. And our teaching environments were anything they were picnic tables they were kitchen tables like they were hammocks they were sitting on the grass so it's I mean even as an adult it's easy to get distracted by anything when those are your teaching environments Um, and so in Cartagena we went on a field trip to a chocolate museum and I tied it into environmental environmental science by kind of talking about how these chocolate farms affected the environment because you know they were clearing ground and taking away from the natural forests in order to create them. So I was able to tie it in which was great because you know chocolate factory museum who wouldn't want to tie that in and it was great we went and we learned about chocolate and then the lower floor was a store and they had samples of everything everything you could want chocolate covered almonds they had chocolate flavored tequila they had chocolate tea they had chocolate coffee they had chocolate soap like i don't even remember what else they had but i do remember we left that shop very happy Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so we started there in cartagena And then we moved north to um, Santa Marta and we stayed there for a bit. And then what was really interesting was we kept going farther north to Cabo de la Vela. And that's pretty much the most northern point in Colombia and it's a food desert. So you start in Cartagena, it's lush, it's green, there's fruit for breakfast. um, It just feels very um, abundant. And Santa Marta as well. And then we, it was like a nine hour bus ride. So it was pretty, pretty far. Um, Everything turned to desert. And they have this really odd tradition where the kids will pull a chain across the road and stop your car or your bus until you give them cookies or money. Um, Because it's a food desert. Like These people just don't have much at all. And it's another place similar to Dakla where a kiting community has popped up. And like if people didn't kite there, there was a point in time where Colombia stopped giving them aid and they were having uh, a lot of problems with people dying of starvation. And Colombia basically said, you're not giving us anything. You don't provide any value. So like too bad so sad. And then the rest of the world went, um, sorry, what? And so it's not, It's not the same. It's not as big of a problem as it used to be. Um, That was a couple years before we went, but it was a little sobering to be traveling in such a privileged group and have kids who are trying to pull over your car for cookies because they don't eat. And so, but it's also cool that your hobby is providing money to a group of people who otherwise wouldn't have a way to really support themselves. So it's, it's it's a flip side you know like sometimes it's hard but also like you're providing a economy and Cabo de la Vela was really interesting because it was so remote we only had electricity at night so no showers no bathroom during the day which was really hard to get used to um you really had to time things well there wasn't really much internet either because we only had internet at night so Cabo de la Vela was very remote and very humbling, I would say, of, like, all the places we went to with this school, for sure.
0: Going back a little bit, what is it like on a long plane trip with 16 teenagers <laughs> being, like, their chaperone, <laughs> basically?
1: So, luckily, for the most part, we really didn't travel with that many students. So, we had a couple different breaks, like, similar to a normal school. We'd have, like, a fall break and a Christmas break. And normally they they would all go their respective ways. Um, There's only a couple times where we traveled as a group and, (laughs) Joey, just picture this. So everyone has all their gear in a golf bag, right? And golf or kite companies actually put golf on the kiteboard bag so that way airlines think hey, if anyone works for an airline and is listening to this, please close your ears right now. They put golf on the kite bag, so that way airlines think that we're shipping golf gear because they're way nicer to golfers than they are to kiters. So picture this, 22 to 24 people show up with 22 to 24 golf bags full of gear weighing anywhere from 30 to 60 pounds. We had several travel agents freak out at us. They expect some overages. They do not expect that. No one expects that. So the kids, while they're teenagers, and sure they're immature in some ways, are definitely by far the most capable independent teenagers I've ever met. So traveling with them wasn't ever stressful outside of the fact that you're traveling with 20 people and you're trying to keep track of 20 people. But the bags, the bags were entertaining, (laughs) Um, watching people's faces. And we'd also sometimes, we'd be in the plane and we'd have a window seat. and We'd be able to see them loading the bags. And we would be able to tell, ooh, sorry, Cameron, your bag got left behind. We'll see that one tomorrow. Because a lot of times they couldn't fit all of our bags, which, you know, it happens. But they ship it the next day, so it's not, like, the worst thing in the world. But it is really funny to count the bags go on the plane and be like, mm-hmm. Okay.
0: (laughs) And especially knowing beforehand who's got left behind.
1: Oh yeah, we totally know. Everyone has a different bag for the most part. And we definitely know who's gets left behind for sure. And then there was one time, I forget which airport it was. I think it was Panama. I want to say it was Panama. Everyone went on strike. So we show up to the airport expecting to get on our plane, not knowing this. And there's no one at the ticket counter, not a person. Not someone to tell us they're on strike, not a sign to tell us they're on strike, just empty. And we're confused. We're checking our flights, like trying to figure out like what's going on. And luckily they got everything together. I don't know how it all panned out, but we didn't have to wait a couple of days. We just had to wait like five or six hours, which sounds like a lot. But I think when you're talking about a strike, it doesn't. But, yeah, that was really harrowing. We had a couple teenagers with us. We were all trying to go home for one of the holidays, and now the airport's on strike, and we don't know how we're getting home, and we're in a foreign country. and
0: You just (laughs) got to figure it out at that point.
1: A lot of that job was figuring it out. You have to be super versatile, super flexible, and very capable of thinking on your feet, for sure. Um, That job is not a job for people who – need structure, need answers, and just need that, like, reliability in their life, for sure.
0: What got you into the seasonal lifestyle? Like, where did the kiteboarding start and all that?
1: So, I graduated from school in 2014, and I was planning on going to grad school. I was planning on just, like, following what I thought of as, like, the traditional lifestyle that I had seen, you know, adults around me do, and, um, I was applying to grad schools, but also going down to the Outer Banks on my free time um, because I only lived like six or seven hours away. And I met up some kiteboarders there and I could not understand their lifestyle. I kept quizzing them. I'm like, okay, so you do what? You get paid, huh? You go where? You work how much? How little? I was very confused. I kept going back down, trying to learn how to kiteboard over the course of 2014 summer. And the first time I went down, it monsooned. I was camping with the guys that were supposed to teach me on a kiteboard, and our tents were underwater. We were sleeping in cars. We were, our way of having fun was uh, playing card games in the car and passing around a bottle of tequila for whoever lost. And that was what we did while it rained for four days straight. And then I left to go and I had to do some sort of uh, short-term job back at home and the weather cleared up as I was going over the bridge to go home. But I had a job, I had an obligation, had to leave. I came back a couple weeks later after that job was over And I got skunked again. No wind. So I had to leave again because I had another job come up. I was doing wildland firefighting. So I had a couple of those stints come up throughout the summer. And so I left to go do that. And when I came back, I tried to go down again. And at this point, it's late August. And the wind is still not there. And I'm like, it's me. Kiteboarding hates me. The wind hates me. This is my fault. I was hanging out with a couple of people, and they all went to go kiteboarding. And kiteboarding isn't a sport that you, like, easily teach someone in like an hour so it's not like oh they're going kiteboarding they can just take a minute out of their time and teach me how to kiteboard so I tagged along with them knowing I wasn't going to get taught but hey any little thing helps like watching people kite and set up their gear and any question I can ask while being like a pesky little annoying tag along I was in and um one of the there was a couple guys and a woman and she was like oh well like why don't you just get a job here all the college kids left and like I laughed because you know It was a surf shop. I'm not a surf girl. I'm a normal kid from Virginia. Like, I don't do that. I go to grad school. And then I started thinking about it, and I'm like, what if I was a surf kid? What if I did do this? What if I just went to grad school next semester? I was like, the only thing keeping me from doing this is myself. And so I applied, and the retail manager was so stoked I'd worked at Chick-fil-A in college. She didn't even look at the rest of my resume. She saw Chick-fil-A and was like, you're hired, and um, I was hired, and I learned how to kiteboard, and the wind got good because I was like, the wind can't stay bad if I live here, and the wind agreed, so it worked out in my favor, and the thing that I think is really cool is, um, so the woman who initially just like casually said that without even probably really thinking about it, probably didn't even register, ended up being my boss of six years, so I went to the lesson center, and she was my boss, and then she helped coached me into being a coach. She made my kiteboarding skills better. She made my people skills better. She made my, like, boss-to-employee skills better or employee-to-boss skills better. Like, she really, like, I've known her now for seven years in the capacity of my boss, and there are, like, very direct things that I can link to her as things that make me a good employee. And, again, I don't know if she knows it, but I think a lot about the fact that she very offhandedly mentioned it, and I would have never... Ever gotten that job if she hadn't made me realize I could be that surf kid
0: So she basically changed the course of your life with that as well.
1: yeah, a hundred percent, like I said, I really was planning on continuing to go to grad school. I was like, well, at this point I'm obviously not going to grad school in August, like it's the end of August. so I was like, well, December's still a possibility, and then everyone kept talking about the summer because I started working there at the end of August, summer's almost over, and I was like, oh well, I mean, I can't do this and not do a summer. That would just be like not really doing it right. And I can't, I like to do things right. Like, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So I was like, oh, well, okay. I have to stay for another summer or my first summer, actually. Honestly, by the time it was June, I was over the idea of grad school. Grad school was not happening. And I was locked in. I was like, I wanted to be a better kiter. I wanted to be... I wanted to get to know my friends better that I like they were just my friends and now they're some of my best friends in my entire life. And like, I feel like I saw that and I just wanted to just be there and get to know these people and get to know the sport and travel because I was seeing these people do things. I didn't know a 20 year old could do. I didn't know we could go to Asia for three months. Who can do that? We can. And so, yeah, I stuck around. It changed my life. And I joy. I don't think I'm going to grad school.
0: I don't think you're going to make it. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit about your wildland firefighting experience.
1: In college, I majored in biology and I really I really do well learning things by hand, putting them into practice. And so I remember my first year of biology, I had a little bit of a quarter-life crisis, decided to switch my major to interior design for like 3 days. And I called up my dad and I told him thinking he'd be really upset and he actually just like supported me. And honestly, that support was all I needed to stay in biology. It's really weird. But the fact that he was okay with me switching to a major that I had absolutely no aptitude in made it easier to stay in the one that was really hard for me. And I went and talked to my advisor and I was like, I'm struggling. I'm really unhappy. I want to switch my major. I was like, but I also like want to stick with this. I just don't know how I'm struggling. And she's like, cool, well, I do this research. So why don't you practice this research with me and maybe it'll make you happier. And it did. So it started out with um, doing bat catching. And so, (laughs) so there's something called white nose syndrome. This is a really convoluted answer to your question but I'll get there, I promise. So white-nose syndrome was bought over from Europe to America, and it's causing all of our bats to come out of hibernation early. Um, It's a fungus that grows on them. They come out of hibernation early. There's nothing for them to eat and they starve to death. And that's not good. We really do need bats. They're a great controller of the uh, insect population, and they also are really integral to pollination. And so we would catch these bats and swab them for the fungus. Um, We'd also go caving and do bat counts during the winter when they're hibernating so that research eventually ended and it turned into same professor different job and i was doing wildlife surveys on a local army ammunition plant and that was really cool as well because we got to catch frogs and go bird watching and basically count them all and just hang out in nature and call it research which is great and the army contractor who was doing that research goes oh, by the way, Nicole, if you go take this like weekend long class in wildland firefighting, you can help us do a prescribed burn on site, which again, things I didn't think I could do. I'm like, I, I can be a wildland firefighter. And he was like, well, no, but you can take the class. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Cool. So I go and take the class. So that way I can help them. Um, because that just sounds like a really cool opportunity. And at the end of the class, The instructor goes, oh, and if anyone wants to sign up to be available to go out west on details, especially in the summer, because that's when they need us, just check the box next to your name when you sign. So I look at him and I go, wait, so I can be a wildland firefighter? And he goes, yes. (laughs) And I was like, oh, yes, of course. And I really just fell into it. Like it wasn't super intentional. It was just like a series of actions. Next thing you know, they're calling me and I'm on summer break and I go out there. And I'm woefully unprepared, but the nice thing is the Midwest firefighters, they get all the quote-unquote fun stuff, which to me is the dangerous stuff. Um, As an East Coast firefighter, they really want us to just mop up fires, which means digging up the hot stuff and making sure it doesn't reignite during the next day, which was great for me personally because these were like the first fires I'd ever been on. I didn't want to be in the danger zone. I didn't want to be where the quote-unquote glory was. And so it was really, really interesting because we slept in tents. We took them down every morning, put them back up every night. If it was raining, we had to put them up in the rain. If it was cold, you just had to put on as many clothes as you could find, and they weren't clean, let me tell you, at that point. And, you know, you just, like, dealt with it. And I really, so I did it for two summers, um, and I really, really liked it. The work was harder than anything I've ever done. And it like kind of stretched my, my idea of who I was, you know, like what I love about my life is I feel like the farther I go along, the more I find out about who I am rather than who I thought I was when I was 14. Um, and that's like one of the first jobs that I can point to where I go, Oh, Whoa, I could do that. But the social dynamics were hard. It's just being a 20 year old female out in the wild with a bunch of guys who are 30 to 40 years older than you. And I was young and inexperienced. So like they had rights to doubt me, but they also took it a step further and weren't always um, very respectful of the fact that I was also not just a woman, but a human and didn't necessarily want like certain comments like sent my way it's a very male dominated field in a very old fashioned way, which I find is very different to kiteboarding and snowboarding, which are also male dominated fields, but in very, very forward thinking ways. And I get a lot of respect in both those fields for not necessarily being a woman, but being a human who shreds or tries to shred.
0: (laughs) So you've been in seasonal work, what, six years now?
1: Yeah, just about that.
0: Six years. Okay. So have you sort of evangelized or gotten people to jump into it that maybe you don't think would have?
1: No, I haven't, but not for lack of trying. (laughs) I do know that, like, people pulled me into it, and I've definitely tried to get some people into it. But if someone wants to do it, I feel like they don't need to be pulled too hard. It's very easy to get someone who is going to do this to do this, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, once they find out it exists, the job is usually either easy or impossible.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if they if it's not in their wheelhouse, then they're not going to do it, and there's no convincing. So I'm also not going to try. It's a fun, awesome, amazing lifestyle, but it's way more challenging than people's Instagram makes it make it look. So I'm never out there campaigning for it. If they want to do it, I'm here for the information. But a lot of times people think they want to do it, and then they kind of hear what I have to say, and they realize that it's, again, not what Instagram makes it look like.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a great point. I mean, that's, that's Instagram by itself is already sort of a highlight reel. But in seasonal work especially, it's really easy to leave out some of the grittier parts of it for sure.
1: When I was I so I worked in the Philippines, like I mentioned earlier, and I was supposed to work there for about four months. And I think I made it a month and a half. And it was one of the most unhappy I've ever been in seasonal work. Um, I was having a lot of problems. My uh, house, I lived alone. It was being broken into by my landlord. My bosses told me I was ungrateful for being bothered by the fact that it was being broken into. There was no wind We didn't have any students. Uh, They wanted us to try to fly kites in no wind. It was just overall like a very frustrating experience. And we were trapped on a very, very small island during this whole thing. And if you look at my Instagram from that month and a half, I did not want my family to know I was in Southeast Asia and unhappy. Like my Instagram looks like I have the best time. And I had good times in it. Um, I had some, like my coworkers were really great, even though my bosses weren't. So there were definitely like highlights in the time, which you see in my Instagram, but it's not the overall month and a half of like laughs and giggles and adventures that my Instagram makes it look like. And that's one of the most memorable things to me. Cause I remember deliberately posting things that made me look happy when I wasn't. And that's not something I normally do. That was just something I was doing because I was so far from home and I didn't want people at home to worry about the fact that I was unhappy that far from home. But we quit and we left and then we had an absolute ball traveling every island we could make it to in the Philippines, which compared to how many there are, wasn't that many. I think there's like over 200 and we made it to nine or 10. So it wasn't the worst thing. It was actually kind of the best thing because otherwise we wouldn't have gotten to travel.
0: So what are some spots in the world that you haven't been to that could be cool to work and teach kiteboarding?
1: Kenya. I really want to go to Africa, to South Africa, and teach kiteboarding. I think it would be like part of the fun thing about seasonal work is working during the season but going or leaving a couple weeks early on either end so that way you can travel. So I'd love to go teach kiteboarding in Kenya And then spend either a couple weeks before or after or both traveling. Um, Maybe do a safari or go see Cape Town. Um, I really want to hike Table Mountain. It's, like, one of the most biodiverse places, and it's in Cape Town. And there's a really cool culture there from what I've heard, and it's massive for kiteboarding. But um, there's a lot of places I want to go. Africa is definitely top of the list.
0: Kenya, right there, number one. That was a quick answer, too.
1: I've been thinking about it. <laughs> I So when I applied to the Philippines, I applied to Kenya and the Philippines and the Philippines answered first. And I had a weird feeling about it, but they answered first. So I went with it and I still sometimes I'm like, hmm, that weird feeling. It was weird. I shouldn't have done it. Intuition is a real thing. Overall, again, it was a great time and I had some really awesome experiences, but I do wonder what it would have been like if I had waited for the job from Kenya to answer and get back to me. So it's like I said, it's been on my bucket list because it was, it was something I wanted to do a couple years ago.
0: What is a lesson you learned growing up in Virginia that has helped you through your seasonal experience?
1: I would say that if it's going to be someone, it could be you. I think I grew up in a very small town in Virginia where a lot of people stayed there and they had aspirations as far as college went, but they didn't have at least from what I could tell, a lot of aspirations as far as travel and self-growth, they kind of, they were on that linear path that I thought I was on, going to grad school and all of that. And so a lot of times I get these questions like, why are you doing this? Or you won't get that job or, you know, you're not good enough for that. Or maybe, you know, it's not said, but it's implied. And I just remember like sometimes telling those people, even in high school, like someone has to get it why not me? And I've taken that into my seasonal life so much. Um, applying for the job with the high school, that felt like a really large stretch, but someone had to get it. Why not me? And guess what? It was me. And that was really, really cool to to do that. And going to Southeast Asia for six months of my winter, like, Nicole, that's not safe. Nicole, you're going to be traveling by yourself. Like, that's not the best idea. And it's like, well, why not? Like, and it was a great idea. Um, Had its ups and its downs, but that's life. And you can't control that. And you might as well have fun while having those ups and those downs. So I think that that sticks with me, even like I'm going to be applying for a new job, uh, assuming the mountains open in the winter. It's an activities director job, so it's really cool. You get to go skiing with a bunch of people. You get to do snowshoe dinners. You organize lunches. You organize um, like parties for club members. And it's a stretch. It's out of my wheelhouse. But why not? Someone has to get it. It could be me.
0: So you've got the Kenya situation coming up in the future. You've got the Colorado stuff going on now and that job here in the winter. What are a couple other things in your future that you're looking forward to?
1: That's a really good question. This is a weird time right now. A lot of plans have been put on hold. I had a trip with friends planned in September. And now we're not entirely sure that's gonna happen. But in the immediate future, I did tear my ACL four months ago which has been really hard because if you guys can't tell, I'm pretty active. So I'm three months post-surgery. And so I'm really, really looking forward to being six months post-surgery and being able to do like more hikes and a little bit more of aggressive stuff. And then nine months post-surgery guys, I get to go snowboarding and kiteboarding again. And that's what I'm really looking forward to. I have no idea what my professional life holds. I have no idea what my personal life holds. All I know is that come November, if I take care of myself, I get to do really fun things with my knee again.
0: Yeah, it's definitely something awesome to look forward to. Well, Nicole, I hope it's a great rest of your recovery from that. And then you get to do all the awesome shit in November.
1: Me too. Looking forward
0: to it. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great hanging out with you and talking to you and learning your story.
1: Thanks so much for having me and showing me around Salida. Do people know where you live? Thanks so much for having me and uh, showing me around Salida. And I'm so stoked to keep exploring Colorado. So it was nice to start here.
0: Yeah That's it, that's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky, the theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Shappy, Thomas Hamilton Follow us on Instagram at the Seasonals underscore, like us on Facebook, listen to our next episode, that's it, we're out. Yeah.